of the difficult seasons, of our darkest hours. To remember is to honor. To honor is to value. What we value shapes who we become. Throughout scripture, God urges us to remember the sacrifices made, the freedom gained, the promises kept, the faithfulness of God. Through symbols and sacraments and holy disciplines, God has continued to urge us to always remember, because he knows what remembering does inside of us. Remembering gives purpose to our past by drawing wisdom, strength, and resolve from our pain and loss. Remembrance brings gratitude for those ordinary people who became extraordinary heroes. Remembrance strengthens community as we discover what God does through us when we are unified. Remembrance provides perspective of what God has done on our behalf in spite of our fears and pain. Remembrance reignites hope in what God will bring us through today and forever. Because God is faithful, even in our darkest hours. God is always there. Whatever we face today, whatever trial it seems we cannot endure, remember, God has always brought us through, and He always will. This is why we remember. It is the 10th anniversary of 9-11. And it's appropriate that we remember. It's appropriate that we reflect. I'd like you to turn to your neighbor and tell them where you were at on 9-11. Take a few moments to do that. There was an email that was distributed shortly after 9-11 and continued to be circulated even to this day where it asked this question, where was God on 9-11? That's a very valid question to ask. Christians have a very interesting take on the answer. 
You see, in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, Jesus told us that whenever His people go out on mission to do His work, He said, I promise, I will be there with you to the very end. Jesus also said in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 20, He said, when just two people gather together in My name, there I am right in the middle of it all. We believe this so deeply at the Oak Hills Church, the teaching of Jesus about His presence, that we have made it the heart and soul of our mission as a church. Many of you wear this bracelet. If you know the mission, say it with me. We are the body of Christ, called to be Jesus in every neighborhood in San Antonio and beyond. We are the body of Christ. We are called to be Jesus. So now the question becomes, were any of Jesus' people around on 9-11, being His hands and feet in New York City, in Washington, D.C., on that plane that went down in Pennsylvania? Well, the answer to that question is it depends. You see, it's not enough to simply say, I call myself a Christian. It's not enough to say, oh yeah, I go to church. The answer to this question depends on whether or not you have taken on Jesus, whether you have clothed yourself in Jesus, whether or not you are looking like Him in your everyday life. Please follow my logic. If we are to be Jesus in the neighborhoods of San Antonio and beyond, including New York City, Washington DC, and Pennsylvania, Jesus is going to have to become more and more of who we are as individuals. Paul said it this way, as the day goes on, you're going to have to decrease and He's going to have to increase. Less of you and more of Him showing up in your life. So if our mission is to look like Jesus, we're going to need a portrait of Him so we can mimic who Jesus is. Pastor, minister, show me what does Jesus look like? Well, over the last 2,000 years, many people have taken a stab at painting a portrait of Jesus. And I have a couple of examples for you. Let's take a look at the first two. Two examples of what some artists think Jesus looked like. Take a look at the next two. <laughs> Hope it's not that one. How about this one? Common, reverent picture of Jesus. And how about this last one? That one guy looks like Barry Manilow. <laughs> I don't think Jesus went to the salon very much. If you were to put some common characteristics in what most people think about how Jesus looked, it would include a beard, long hair, a robe, and sandals. So are we supposed to have long hair, a beard, wear sandals, carry a robe? Well, Max and I have convened on this idea. Would that help? And we have concluded, why yes, that would help a lot. And so after the service today, we're opening up a new Jesus Wear store in the Upper Mall area. And we'd like all of you to make your way there. I want you to know that today and today only, if you buy a genuine leather pair of Galilean sandals, you can get a Jesus beard for 50% off. <laughs> Let's look like Jesus, folks. Let's pray. <laughs> you laugh because you know that that won't do. 
Being like Jesus doesn't really mean looking like him on the outside by what he wore or the hair he grew on his face, but rather it has more to do with becoming more like him on the inside out. I would like to suggest that it is, it is your personal mission to become like Jesus that's going to involve three things. First of all, we're going to have to think like Jesus. We're going to have to think like Jesus. We're going to need to embrace in our minds what was in Jesus' mind. We're going to need to hold to the core beliefs that he held to. We're going to need to think the thoughts that he had in a given day. Paul challenged believers with these words in Romans 12 too. Listen carefully. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Paul says to us that the work of spiritual formation, forming to look like Christ, begins with the hard work of renewing your mind. The image of renewing your mind is like taking a, a piece of steak and dipping it in teriyaki sauce for three days. Your mind just becomes saturated in every fashion to think like Jesus. Becoming like Jesus doesn't begin on the outside, wearing His clothes, but on the inside by the daily renewing of our mind and how we think. So the question becomes, what did Jesus think? What did Jesus believe? And when you discover that, the goal would be to embrace it with your full mind. I want you to know that over the next two weeks, I'm going to introduce you to what I believe are the top core beliefs of the Bible and that Jesus embraced. And then I'm going to turn around and invite you to embrace it with your full mind. But it's more than that. Not only do we need to think like Jesus, but we also need to act like Jesus. We need to act like Jesus. How did Jesus use his day? What were the priorities of his time. If you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what do you observe about the poor, core practices that Jesus engaged in to strengthen his spiritual walk and to improve his relationship with his heavenly Father? Did we see Jesus praying? Did he have a small community around him? Did Jesus memorize and study the Word of God? Did Jesus own a bunch of stuff? Take a look at the life of Jesus. Observe what Jesus did in a given day. What practices that he engaged in and what activities he sought to avoid. And then do what Paul tells us to do in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. He writes, imitate God. Therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children, live a life filled with love, Following, say it with me, the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. But there's one more step. Not only do we need to think like Jesus and act like Jesus, but we need to be like Jesus. There are virtues in the life of Jesus that are manifesting themselves when you spend time with Him. Or when you observe how He treated other people. Read through the Gospels this week and just make note of how Jesus treated
treated people in relationship with them. And I'd like to suggest that Jesus is the full embodiment of the fruit of the Spirit found in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. He was full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Paul tells us and admonishes us in Philippians 2, 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. We should seek to embody the very virtues of Jesus. And you know, it is really the virtues of Christ that are really the ultimate outcome and goal of our journey of becoming a disciple or forming to look like Christ. Because it is the virtues that have the greatest impact on our relationships, on others, on the community. Take, for example, the virtue of kindness and faithfulness. These are two of the core virtues that Jesus embodied in his everyday life. Say that they are true of your life as well, and they find their greatest impact in community or in relationship. But if you were to embody kindness and faithfulness and then spend the rest of your life in a room all by yourself, it would not have a way to express itself. The purpose of virtue is not only for me, but it is primarily about you. But there's something you need to know. Even as you listen to these words and say, yes, that's the kind of person I want to become. I want to be like Jesus. There's something you need to know. You cannot decide to focus on being alone. For example, you can't declare, by golly, tomorrow I'm going to be more humble. It doesn't work that way. When you look at the scriptures and how you become like Jesus in virtue, it doesn't suggest that you can just simply declare by your will that you're going to be more humble today than you were tomorrow. It's a good goal to have, but that's not how you become more humble. The Bible teaches us if you want to become more humble, you're going to have to go back and do some hard work, the very hard work of spiritual formation, because if you lack humility, or if you struggle with pride and arrogance or being a braggart, there is something in your mind that's not right. There is something in the way in which you think that causes you to be arrogant, that causes you to be prideful, that causes you to be a braggart. Now it's interesting for Christians, if I were to give you what the core belief is that will lead to humility, you will likely say, no, I believe that. Yes, I believe that's the right answer. But over the years, I've had the good fortune of having a couple of mentors, particularly in the area of spiritual development, a guy named George Gallup Jr., of the famous Gallup Poll Organization, who not only is good at polls, but he happens to be an incredibly gentle follower of Jesus Christ. Another one, a guy named Dr. Dallas Willard. Maybe some of you know him, maybe some of you don't. He's written some excellent works like The Divine Conspiracy and The Spirit of the Disciplines and Renovation of the Heart. He's a professor at the University of Southern California. And finally, a man named J.I. Packard, or Jim Packard, who is an incredible professor. And I've had the privilege to spend personal time with all three of these guys in multiple days in a row, and they have spiritually unnerved and undressed me. And it caused me to go back to the very core nature of how I think and the importance if I seek to become like Jesus. 
a couple of the virtues that I desire to see in my life that are in Christ's life that they help me to come back to the way I think. For example, in the area of humility. This was an area several years ago that a loving community around me, including my wife and my teenage daughter at the time and a good friend of mine that I worked with, helped me to see that if I really wanted to become more like Christ, an area that I could really seek to grow in would be the area of humility. And it was really uh, an uncomfortable uh, reality for me that I appeared to others as being maybe a little prideful or a little bit of a braggart or maybe a lot of a braggart. I'm still not owning it. Maybe a lot of a braggart. And, uh, and I really wanted to change that. And, and what these mentors helped me to understand is that a person who struggles with humility is a person who in their mind doesn't really believe what Jesus believes about where your worth comes from. The Bible teaches us that our worth and our identity comes from our position as a child of God. But a person who struggles with humility, that is a person who struggles with pride and arrogance and being a braggart, doesn't believe that their identity and worth comes from their position in God, but rather they believe it comes from their performance. And they're waiting for a report card to come back from other people to give them an indication that they're truly a worthwhile person. And so we work really, really hard. And we want you to know everything about us. And so we tell you all the things you may not know about us that might impress you so that you might repeat back to us that we're truly valuable people. This was a problem in my life. The, the reality is I believed that our identity is found in our position as children of God. I believe that was the right answer, and I even gave sermons on it. But I didn't believe it as a way of life. Do you understand the difference in believing something as the right answer and believing something as a way of life? Until it becomes that severe, you believe it so severely that it affects everything about you, can you truly, ultimately, be a humble person. I remember working with a guy named Jim Packard. We were sitting in a room together and it was during the time that my mother had uh, died of pancreatic cancer and, and my life was a wreck and I was really struggling. I lacked a lot of confidence in my faith and, and uh, Packard said to me, Randy, hope is one of the core virtues of Jesus. You need to tell the people that hope is one of the core ten virtues that Jesus embodied and that they need to embody. And he says, Randy, I don't think that you have much biblical hope. And over the course of our conversation, he helped me to understand that in my mind, for some reason, even though I knew it was the right answer, listen very carefully to what I'm going to say, that I did not really believe in heaven. I didn't really believe it. Oh, I believed it was the right answer. Matter of fact, I remember on several occasions, I gave a stirring sermon on the subject of heaven and the altars were filled with people. But in my mind, I didn't really believe it as a way of life. Are you hearing me? I didn't believe it as a way of life. And I went back to do some really hard work because, see, I struggled as a young man with the idea that I was going to die. I didn't want to think about that. 
And number two, I had a hard time getting my mind around the idea that when I breathed my last breath, that the spirit of me sort of exited my body and made its way to the heavens to be with Jesus, which was a better place. I just couldn't get my mind around it. And so therefore, while I knew the Bible taught it, and while I knew it was the right answer, and while I knew I had to give sermons on it, in the quietness of my own personal life, I just didn't really believe it a lot. Are you following me? And what happened is it left me without the kind of hope I should have had when my mother died. And it entered into me a kind of crisis in my life. And I was challenged to do the hard work of spiritual formation. Take the virtue of gentleness. One of the things that Jesus embodied was gentleness, how he treated people so gently. If you struggle with gentleness, and if you don't know if you struggle with gentleness, just ask the people around you. They will tell you. If you struggle in sort of being rough or kind of short-tempered with people that are in your life, close to you and all around, um, and you want to become more gentle, you just can't declare, that's it. I am going to try really hard to be more gentle tomorrow. Really hard. You can't get there. You're going to have to go back into something in your head that's not right. And it'll be surprising to you to confront the idea that most people who struggle with gentleness do not think about people the same way God thinks about people. Your view of humanity is different than Jesus's. Jesus saw every person. People that you currently see as idiots and careless and stupid. Ugh. Jesus saw them as valued treasures and something that you value, something that you treasure, you deal with gently. If you struggle with gentleness, it's likely true that even though you believe it is the right answer, you don't currently see people the way God does. Now the question is, how do you embed this belief into your life in such a way that it becomes a way of life? You now move to what we call the spiritual disciplines. Things that you do to embed these beliefs into your mind. Things like worship, like we have just done. Things like studying the Word, memorizing the Word, serving other people, praying. These traditional spiritual disciplines are the acts by which we take these beliefs and embed them into our life. And what will happen? And over time, day after day, if you commit your life to the spiritual journey of practicing your spiritual life by embedding these beliefs deep within you, eventually over time, the virtue of Jesus will begin to pop up on the outside of your life. It'll surprise the people around you. Oh my gosh, what's that? And if you continue this journey over a lifetime in God's strength and God's grace, little by little, you will decrease and Jesus will increase. Now back to our original question. Where was God on 9-11? For us, the question becomes, were there Jesus people on site who were becoming more like Him every day by the way they were thinking, acting, and simply were, who took on the assignment that day, 9-11-2001, to be the hands and feet of Jesus? Were there anybody there? Was there anybody there? The answer? Most definitely, yes. Hundreds of stories of the presence of Jesus. One that sticks out for me took place in New York City, the World Trade Center. There was a building policy of employees of the World Trade Center 
towers that if the fire alarm went off, uh, you were to wait to get instructions uh, from the intercom system to tell you where to go. In the meantime, stay put where you're at in your office. Well, when the planes hit the towers, it set off the alarm, but it also shut down the intercom system. So people were in their offices, particularly those above where the plane hit, and they were terrorized, but had no idea what to do next. And they sat in their office, not knowing the way out or what to do. Can you imagine being in that place? Well, on the 88th floor, there were two men who stepped up with great courage. Frank Martini and Pablo Ortiz. They stepped out of their offices and they found a way out courageously. Just one stairwell where people could exit without being consumed in fire. And they took the people on the 88th floor of that building, including Frank's wife, and they took them down that one stairwell to safety. Take a look at this video. One man takes charge of the situation. Construction manager, Frank DiMartini. Grab the radio. Frank just appeared. I'm not even sure where he came from and seemed to immediately assess what needed to be done. Everybody stay calm. Jerry, we're going to get the plans and we're going to figure out what we're going to do. I never saw Frank panicking. He was very, very alert. He knew exactly what he was doing. Start moving people down. Yeah. This was very typical of Frank. He always took charge as soon as something happened. Okay, have you tried C? Frank sort of eased everybody's fears. I think everyone had total trust in whatever he was telling us to do, we were going to do, because we knew that he, he would get us out safely. We just knew it. Okay, I want everybody to move into this office now. Frank gathers everyone together in one large office and tells them to wait. Okay, everybody, just remain calm. We um, all got together in Alan Musa's office. He was the director at the time of the World Trade Department. And we were corralling ourselves to, you know, make sure everybody was okay and put our thoughts together, because I don't think anybody really thought straight in those first couple of moments. Frank uses the Port Authority's two-way radio system to alert his colleagues on the ground. 7-7, seven, seven. we got somebody here who needs medical attention immediately. But the airways are clogged and in chaos. The 88th floor. Frank is attempting to manage the situation, but he still doesn't realize how much trouble they're in. When Frank and Pablo led the group of people who were stuck on the 88th floor down to ground level to safety, instead of staying down with them, they went back up again to the 89th floor and found a group of four or five people stuck there and led them to the one way out. Instead of going down with them, they went up to the 90th floor and found some people terrorized there and led them down that stairway, the only way out. Instead of going down with them, they went up to the 91st floor and the 92nd floor. At the end of the day, these two gentlemen led 77 people to safety, but they themselves never came out. 
Frank and Pablo that day sacrificed their lives so others could be saved. Where was Jesus on 9-11? Was he there? The answer, yes. What did he look like? Let me show you one portrait of Jesus. That's Frank. Let me give you another portrait. Pablo. Yes, God's presence was there on 9-11-2001. And I have good news for you. His presence is there again on 9-11-2011. Not in the form of clergy on the stage during the ceremony, ceremony praying. That's a big mistake. It's crazy that we're not offering prayers from the stage. That's nuts. The answer, the agenda is too full. <laughs> I have to tell you, if I'm putting together the agenda for an event like this, the last person I'm kicking off the agenda is God. That is for sure. I know that there is some thought that if we have prayers that it will create some sort of religious unrest and a fight may break out and it might be an unsafe place to be. I need to let you know, folks, we are only safe as a nation because of God. We cannot snuff Him out of our life or pretend that He isn't the one who is behind this nation. And if we forget that, oh my God, are we in big trouble. But you learned this a couple of weeks ago. The prayer of a clergy on stage is no more effective than the prayers of his people on the ground. And I can promise you right now, the prayers are being lifted up on the ground. As a matter of fact, Roseanne and I on Thursday uh, made our way to Orlando through Dallas. And uh, as we were uh, heading to Orlando through Dallas, we were on the same flight with three women from the Oak Hills Church who were on their way to New York City through Dallas. Three ladies who were there on 9-11, right after the disaster. And I asked them, what did you do? And they said, mainly what people wanted us to do for them, who had terror on their face, they were scared out of their mind, they just wanted us to pray. They wanted us to pray. That's what the people want. They want God. They want to pray, and that's what they did. And they were going up 10 years later to do the same thing. So as we're sitting in this room today, they're on the ground being Jesus. I took a picture of them in the Dallas-Fort Worth airport. You want to see a portrait of Jesus? Let me show you another portrait of Jesus. There they are. Now, folks, the reality is that every day in our neighborhoods, right here in San Antonio, a plane smashes into a new family and destroys it. Every day, thousands of people right here can't find their way out of domestic abuse, generational poverty, drug addiction. Every day, one in four children in our city don't know for sure where their next meal is coming from, and it terrorizes them. Every day, people lose somebody they love in our city, someone they counted on that will not be there tomorrow morning. Every day, hundreds in our community are losing their jobs and can't make ends meet right where we live. The email that goes out today is, where is God in San Antonio 
on 9-11-2011? That's the question. The answer, right here in this room. As a group of people today are recommitting afresh to think, act, and be like Jesus. So that when we leave this building and head out into the communities, into our neighborhoods, into our schools, into our places of work, we're ready to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And Jesus said, if you will do that, I promise to go with you and to show up everywhere you go. My friends, that is a portrait of Jesus. And all the church said, Amen. Amen.